This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Today I am continuing our current series of talks on the gospel according to Mark, which is called Who is Jesus? And my title for today's talk is Where Are You Getting Stuck? It has nothing to do with Mother's Day, by the way, in case you're trying to form a link. Um, And an earlier version of this talk, a draft version, was called Where's the Blockage? But then I realized that that might get accidentally found by someone looking for a good plumber. So I went with where where are you getting stuck instead. And let me tell you where that comes from, okay? Uh, Earlier this week, uh, I was sitting in my car, um, in the car park, and my son Noah was doing his football training um, uh, in the school uh, training uh, field next door. And I was on Zoom with Steve Roberts and Dave Neal, who some of you will know, uh, because we're in a triplet. And we do this every two weeks. We meet up, sometimes in person, sometimes online. And it's just a great way to kind of be processing life together, sharing what's going on for us, what God's doing in our lives. And we ask each other these four questions. And the first one is, what's gone well since we last met? So that's the nice bit. We kind of celebrate uh, good things that have happened. Then the second one is, where have you got stuck? Or where, or where have you got emotionally triggered? And it's a brilliant question because it forces me, at least, to, to have to reflect and have to think, what's been going on in the last two weeks? And where have I got stuck in a way of thinking or a way of behaving that I, I wish was different or I wish I had reacted differently to something? So um, this week, I had to share with the guys about a time when I was cycling home from work, and I was going across this narrow pedestrian and cyclist's bridge near Wapping Wharf, and I think I got my judgment slightly wrong, because I went onto the other side to overtake some people, and this lady was walking the other way, and I kind of, I made it, I cut in ahead of her, didn't hit anybody, but she said, kind of quietly, but very deliberately, deliberately, Uh, a word which I can't repeat into the microphone, and which was directed definitely at me. And I didn't respond. I kind of froze. I carried on cycling. But all the way home, I was kind of stewing, and I had this feeling of anger and just the injustice that she hadn't needed to call me that. And, you know, the crime, you know, hadn't fitted the punishment, as it were. Um... And I just had this pent-up emotion, and it happened that that was right before my triplet call. Uh, So I was telling the guys about this, and it felt good just to be able to kind of express that to someone. Um, And then maybe to come to the realization that, yes, I was in the wrong. And my action point for this week should be to cycle more slowly or more carefully (laughs) for other people. So that was kind of an easy one. Another thing, though, that I had to talk about was um, struggling to cope with my to-do list. And I'm sure at least some of you can relate to this, that feeling like there's always too much to do. There's always more that could be done, isn't there? And that leads to, or has led to in the last couple of weeks, kind of working in the evenings or not being present with my family, uh, experiencing some anxiety as well that has kept me up at night. And... Uh, one of the following questions is, what are you going to do about it? So the guys asked me this, and I had to think a bit about ways that I could maybe prioritize more proactively um, to let go of things that can't be done, that can't get done, to, to be more okay with that, and to remember that my identity isn't just in what I do. 
all things that I know, but I need to be reminded of. And that triplet call was a brilliant reminder to me uh, of, of each of those things. So the question is a really simple way to kind of become aware uh, and then to find ways to move forward and to find some hope uh, going forward. And it struck me that it's a decent title for my talk today because we're going to be looking at three interactions Jesus has with different people in Mark chapter 10. And we're going to examine some of the things that seem to cause people to get stuck in their response to Jesus. Money, possessions, status, reputation, circumstances, etc. And as we read these, and I share a few thoughts on them, I want to invite you just to be listening to God and to be asking yourself that question. Where are you getting stuck at the moment? What's getting in your way? What's stopping you maybe from fully following Jesus? And, you know, I'm, I'm making an assumption there that many of us are here today because at some point we've made that decision. We want to follow the life and the example of this person, Jesus. But we get, you know, distracted. We get thrown off course. Uh, we have a wobble. So today is about just thinking about uh, where is that wobble for me at the moment? And then I think what God wants to do today is just to give us some freedom and some hope in those areas where we're getting stuck. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. We're going to start at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. So much going on in this short exchange. So let's just unpack it a little bit. This guy who apparently has a lot of wealth comes up to Jesus and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. He probably wasn't thinking about going to heaven when he dies, by the way. That's the way that we might hear it through maybe a kind of modern Western evangelical lens. But for the Jews at the time, eternal life would have been just as much about the quality of life as the quantity of life, as how long it would last. Uh, they didn't have that imagery of heaven and hell as detached places somewhere out in the ether. So this man's question about eternal life is more about having the fullness, the abundance, the better life that God offers. That's what he wants. And Jesus' response is really interesting. First of all, he asks him a question back, which is not at all untypical for Jesus. Um, and it's a, a question that seems a bit cryptic. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. All through the Gospels, we see Jesus kind of nudging people. This is how I kind of interpret it. It's like he sees people sitting on a fence and he kind of nudges them. He pokes them in different ways to see which way they will fall. Will they fall towards him or will they fall away? Anyway, the man doesn't bite at that question. So Jesus then gives him a question, an answer which would have been much more standard, kind of a stock answer for Jewish rabbis at the time. 
How do you want to inherit eternal life? Well, of course, you obey the commandments. And as part of that, they probably would have given you uh, a long list of additional rules and regulations that would help you to make sure that you didn't break the commandments to keep you on the straight and narrow. Jesus then goes on to quote some of the Ten Commandments, not all of them. He skips the first four completely. He lists the sixth to the ninth. And then he ad-libs a bit when he changes do not steal and do not cover to you shall not defraud. So he seems to have a bit of poetic license with the Ten Commandments. But the man says, and I think this is sincere, that he's managed to live by the ones that Jesus has listed. And yet he's still clearly got this itch. You know, he's come running to Jesus, running to Jesus and asked him this question, which indicates that he knows something's not quite right. He knows that he's missing something. He has that proverbial God-shaped hole in his life or restlessness that seems to be part of the human condition. So Jesus cuts to the chase and he, he puts his finger on a particular issue in this man's life, which is his attachment to his possessions. And he challenges him to go, sell everything he has, and give it to the poor. Then to come follow him. This wasn't the answer that Jesus gave to everyone, by the way. Not everyone who came to him with a question, uh, or that he talked to, or he offered help to, had this particular answer. It seems to be tailored to this specific person. He's kind of nudging him a little bit more. But his wealth matters too much to him. It's too much of an idol in his life, and it's stopping him from following Jesus. And the following Jesus part, I think, is the real answer to his question. But his, his possessions and his attachment to them are where he's stuck, are getting in the way. And Jesus lets him walk away. And then he speaks to those listening in. We'll keep reading verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So that picture which you're probably familiar with it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God I, I think this is a deliberate picture of impossibility you know there have been some people who've sought to interpret it in different ways perhaps the word for camel was actually the word for rope and so passing a rope through the eye of a needle uh, you know it's difficult but it may just be possible other people have said maybe the eye of a needle is actually a particular gate in Jerusalem or a particular type of gate in Jerusalem that camels could get through, but only with a lot of effort and difficulty. But I think those interpretations miss the point. As I said, I think it's a picture of impossibility. But note the closing line Jesus says, not impossible with God. I think Jesus wants to challenge their view of wealth and to raise questions about who was in and who was out. The disciples are shocked by what Jesus is saying because they regarded wealth as a measure of God's blessing and his favor. It was a common view in Judaism. Wealth was from God, and therefore, if you had quite a bit of it, then you must be doing okay with God. 
And with that vivid imagery of the camel, Jesus is saying that that is emphatically not the case. But note, he didn't say there was anything inherently wrong with wealth. It's just that money seems to have this particular power to kind of blind us to our need for God. Perhaps that's why Jesus taught more on money than on almost any other subject, probably bar the kingdom of God. And why he says elsewhere that it's impossible to serve both God and money. Tim Keller, in his book, King's Cross, argues Jesus doesn't have a problem with good things. The problem is how we may be using those good things to cover up our flaws or to mask our inner sense of poverty. We may be using good things to feel superior to others or even to manipulate them. For lots of people, things aren't just things, they're identities. John Mark Comer takes a slightly different angle and challenges our society's belief that the more you have, the happier you'll be. Happiness is out there, we're told. It's just one Amazon click away or a new gadget or a new mortgage away. It's just out of reach, but you're nearly there. And the oil tycoon John Rockefeller articulated this when he was asked, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. So followers of Jesus have always wrestled with the question of their relationship with money and possessions and what that should be. And there's tended to be two extremes. There's been kind of a prosperity gospel, which teaches that real faith will be rewarded with real wealth and that wealth is a measure of God's favor on you. Of course, there's some very troubling implications of that. Like, what does it mean for those who are living in poverty? Are they any less loved or blessed by God? But the other extreme is a kind of asceticism, a renouncing of material possessions, and that has some dangers too. It can glamorize poverty, which is something that the Bible never does. It can lead into a kind of legalism, which Jesus' own life would seem to contradict and challenge. You know, he wasn't against enjoying some of the good things in life. So the answer is a kind of balance or a kind of tension or a kind of freedom, um, which is characterized by generosity and I think a carefree relationship with possessions where you can enjoy them if you have them, but you can be content if you don't. John Mark Comer puts it like this, to follow Jesus, especially in the Western world, is to live in that same tension between grateful, happy enjoyment of nice, beautiful things and simplicity. And when in doubt, to err on the side of generous, simple living. In fact, if you want to read um, a, a really attractive uh, description of the freedom that simplicity can offer us, then his book, A Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, has um, a really wonderful uh, depiction of that in, in the chapter uh, about this topic. Um, what we can actually experience if we learn to press in to Jesus' teaching when he says, don't worry about what you will eat or drink or what you will wear. And he also, marks, uh, he also mentions generosity there, which I think is tied in to Jesus' request of the man. It wasn't just get rid of all of your stuff because the stuff's bad. It was give it to the poor, which of course is a, a topic and a theme that we see right through the Bible and as followers of Jesus, we need to be constantly thinking about the unequal distribution of wealth in the world, about our part in that, and about what God might ask of us individually and corporately as part of his solution to it. So I don't think there's an easy answer 
on that question of relationship with money and wealth, but I think it's a question of discerning in relationship with God what he would ask of us. Anyway, one final point before we move on to the next conversation and the next obstacle. And it's a fascinating side note I came across um, that a lot of commentators have suggested that the young man in this story may in fact be Mark. He may be the author of this account of Jesus' life. He doesn't name himself, but there are some reasons why people think that. First of all, we know that Mark was young. Uh, Secondly, He's from a well-off family. We know that his mother, Mary, owned a large house in Jerusalem that the disciples used to gather in in Acts. But then there's also this phrase that appears in the story, which is a really strange phrase to put in there, when he says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. It's a very personal description of, of something that must have been a first-hand account, either from Mark or from someone who conveyed it to him directly. So it's possible, not saying guaranteed or likely, but it's possible that Mark himself may have been that rich young man and he may have experienced the love of Jesus in that moment, but he was stuck in his way of thinking and in his attachment to his possessions. And what's more, even, even more intriguing about that possibility, I think, is if it was the same person who went to write on this account, then presumably he went away sad, but that wasn't the end of the story. After some time, he must have changed his mind. He must have returned. And Acts tells us about some of the things that Mark goes on to do as he accompanies Paul and then Barnabas and then Peter in the roles that God gives them. So it's just an interesting, intriguing little side note. But um, but yeah, but it would be incredible if it was correct. Anyway, if money is one thing that can cause us to get stuck, what is something else? Well, let's have a look at the next two chaps who come along and talk to Jesus in Mark 10. Verse 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. How's that for a request, (laughs) for an opener? Do what we want. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. I kind of imagine him smiling as he asked that. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Don't have time to go too much into everything said here, but suffice to say that the conversation about the cup and the baptism refers to the suffering that Jesus knows that he needs to go through. And indeed, the verses just before this involve Jesus informing his disciples again, not for the first time, that he's destined for the cross. He's heading for his death. But I want to focus on that request made by these two brothers because it sounds a bit bizarre and I think points towards another area where we can get stuck. Um, And that was, for them, what was foremost in their lives was not wealth or possessions, but position and status. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. I don't think they were thinking about heaven when they asked this. They thought that Jesus was leading a military revolution against the occupation. 
and they wanted to have the best seats in the house, the best positions, once he had emerged victorious. They wanted to turn Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem as Messiah into an opportunity to be given some power. Or another way that you could look at it is that perhaps they just cared about their reputations and about what other people think of them. And this is something I can really relate to. I've been realizing, you know, through the process of doing the emotionally focused course and conversations with others that I care, I care way too much about what people think about me. So much of my behavior is driven by the desire to ensure that people will think well of me. And that, in turn, can lead to some really dysfunctional behaviors that I get stuck in. So I mentioned overworking earlier, you know, just to make sure that I don't let people down. Another one is avoiding conflict, to make sure that my relationships aren't harmed and people don't think badly of me. But I've learned that the truth is that these limit my relationships. If I'm not present with people, if I'm not um, expressing what I feel, then it's limiting my relationships. So these are things I'm working on. And it's a huge challenge to me to think of what Jesus had to go through, which was a process where people disliked him, falsely accused him, and where his reputation was shot to pieces as his followers gradually drifted away and abandoned him as he headed for the cross. He must have had such incredible security or just incredible courage to do what he needed to do. Like that journalist that Owen highlighted last week who went on Russian TV holding the sign against the war, knowing full well that she may well have to suffer the consequences, but believing that it was the right thing to do. I think it's incredible when people risk safety and reputation for what they know is right. So back to the story um, and how this goes down with the other disciples, verse 41. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the kingdom of God turns the world's ideas of power and leadership upside down and inside out. Is my desire to be well thought of by others actually an idol in my life? Could it get in the way of following Jesus? I think it could. And that leads us to the final encounter that we want to look at with the person who, in my mind, maybe has the best excuse or the biggest reason for not following Jesus, not being part of his movement. And that was really because of his circumstances. Uh, verse 46, then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and called him and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. 
Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. Which, by the way, is exactly the same question as he had asked those two brothers. But the blind man says, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. He followed Jesus along the road. I think this blind man, Bartimaeus, is meant to be a model of the response that Jesus is looking for. First of all, he has some degree of recognition, some degree of faith in who Jesus is. He uses that title, Son of David. And it's a title that's used in the Old Testament for the coming Messiah, who would be a descendant of David and who would sit on the throne of David. So what irony that of all the people who were there in the crowd looking at Jesus, the only person who seemed to recognize him, who seemed to see something of who he was, was this blind man. Secondly, he persists. Even when others try to dissuade him or marginalize him, verse 48, it says, many rebuked him, told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more. Is there something about not giving up, about persisting, about not taking no for an answer that God actually likes, that he actually responds to? Thirdly, he has the courage to ask for radical change. When Jesus asked him that question, what do you want me to do for you? It may seem like a bit of an odd question to ask a blind man. You know, isn't it 100% sure that he'll say, I want to see? But I don't think it is. I think it's a real question. I think he's saying, Bartimaeus, do you want to give up begging? Do you want to have to live differently? To live a life you're not used to? to have to work for a living, to have no reason to sit by the roadside all day, depending on passers-by. And this man, Bartimaeus, has the courage to go for it. And he says, I want to see, and receives the miracle that he's hoping for. And fourthly, he follows Jesus along the road. If we go back to the first call of Jesus to his disciples on the lake shore, what was it? It was come and follow me. If we look at his invitation to the rich young man uh, that we've talked about, it was sell your possessions, give to the poor, and come follow me. Bartimaeus doesn't know what's ahead. He doesn't understand all of the implications, but his life has been changed, and he models, I think, a kind of freedom that the others don't. He's not hindered by the things that they're hindered by, and so he starts following Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. The way of discipleship. It's a simple faith, simple trust, wholly dependent on Jesus. And that reminds me of something else uh, a little earlier in chapter 10, which we didn't cover, that I'll just read to finish with. Verse 13, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Childlike faith, total dependency, joyful freedom. 
How does that sound to you? Is it appealing? I know that it, it is to me, it still is to me, even after all these years. Um, despite the fact I keep getting stuck with different things, I do want to keep following this man Jesus, this example of a life well lived. And that little passage there about childlike faith, my sense is that for some of us, we've had a very challenging couple of years with the pandemic. We've maybe asked some questions that we hadn't asked before. You know, we did a series here on questioning our assumptions, which I think is really important. But what I felt God drawing me back to in these last couple of weeks, and which he may also be inviting others to, is just returning to that simple faith, that childlike faith, says, I don't understand everything. Bartimaeus' faith, I don't know where we're going, but we're going down the road and I'm coming along. I'm still up for following. Why don't we stand and we'll just finish in prayer. Just give God a few moments to bring this home uh, for each of us in whatever way he wants.